0: Welcome back to Troubled, a podcast by survivors of institutional abuse for survivors, the general public. Parents Considering Residential Programs of Behavioral Modification or Therapeutic Boarding Schools for Their Kids. Um, This time, Meredith and I are going to be doing solo episodes. For myself, I am actually taking some inspiration from the AA format that we used at the school. Um, For those of you familiar with AA or in programs that were based on AA, there are 12 steps that you follow, and at one point, you actually share your story with the community. So I thought it would be kind of ironic, um, and actually I think a correct use of the word, to use that as my format for my solo episode to give you a little background on me and my personal experience. So in that vein, here we go. My name is Miranda Sullivan, and I am not an alcoholic But I do get to deal with other addictions to fear-based false gods, um, as expressed through my pretty complex PTSD disorder. Uh, A great extent of that correlates to my experience in the troubled teen industry, of which I spent less than a year at the Family Foundation School in Hancock, New York, which is derived from Synanon, a cult that has been closed by the FBI by the '90s. I was at the family school in the early 2000s. Um, I don't blame my entire experience with complex PTSD on the family school, although I don't believe that it would be affecting my life in the way it is, or that I would have a complex if I hadn't been through such an extreme reprogramming and brainwashing, totally, totally surreal experience, experiment like the family school. Um, so it's a very significant aspect of my experience in informing who I am today, especially as I deal with the symptoms, um, and the, uh, what do you want to call it? Manifestations, I guess, of CPTSD. Especially because I personally believe that CPTSD is rampant in American society today um obviously not specifically because Of surviving institutional abuse um, within rehabs, within uh, the foster care system, Uh, these programs that we primarily touch on because that's our personal experience, um, you know, orphanages, mental hospitals, all that jazz. Uh, There's also from sexual assault, um, PTSD obviously is going to tie into this with wartime experience or violence, especially at home, extreme poverty. If you look at the ACEs, um, the adverse child childhood experience quiz and you see how many Americans are scoring far too high on that and how we have already scientifically correlated it with long-term and lifelong um, immunodeficiency disorders, illnesses, proclivities to heart issues. Um, Just Google it look it up. I'm not a science-y kind of based person. I'm definitely not going to debate that, but the science is out there. They've been studying this since at least the 90s. Um, and I remember taking the ACE uh, this summer when I really, really hit realization uh, that I had complex PTSD and I needed to deal with it. Um, even though I'd been previously diagnosed, I disregarded all of my previous diagnos- because uh, they were in my youth, and I felt completely misunderstood and misdiagnosed at the time, and I do think some of them were. Uh, But the CPTSD is something that, with my current knowledge, which isn't a lot, I definitely can accept that about my experience. Um, But I scored relatively high, I believe it was an 18 out of 20, I think is the ace. And I thought that that was kind of standard for the world that we all grew up in. And for especially 90s homes, a lot of the kids being raised by the baby boomers, uh, those of us born in the mid to late 80s, but then a friend of mine, I had her take it as well, um, and that was not her experience. I don't even think she got a five. It was really, really low. Uh blew my mind that she could grow up in a home where her parents weren't fighting and they weren't, you know, verbally abusing her, calling her names, and uh, there wasn't real use of corporal punishment at all. Uh, no wooden spoons breaking on their bums, running around the house trying to escape mommy or daddy, and... um so that was that was really weird because I thought that we can all relate on that level. Um, so I think it's an issue that we really need to have more of a conversation about collectively. And so instead of my alcoholism, let's talk about the complex PTSDism because uh, I don't have alcoholism. I don't identify as an alcoholic. I was raised by one who was raised by one, and that kind of goes backwards since we got to America, um, which makes a lot of sense if you really like, into all that jazz. Um, I'm Irish and Sicilian, like, third generation, so we're having a lot of fun with uh, the alcoholism. So growing up in those homes, I didn't think that someone who always had a drink in their hand meant they were an alcoholic, Um, and it wasn't really until writing the letter to the VA for my father's uh, PTSD disability a few years ago as an adult that I really realized how abnormal um, my home life was and how drastically it had been affected by growing up with a parent with an undiagnosed mental health disorder who was self-medicating with alcohol. Um, And the fun parts about that, and I'm sure some of you can relate if some of you listening grew up in similar households. My dad's a Vietnam veteran. He joined the Corps when he was 17 years old after his father died, um, which was a pretty tragic experience for his family. And his mother was a full-blown alcoholic. So he was able to get her to sign the papers, went to Vietnam when he was 17. And in the 90s, PTSD wasn't really a thing. So my dad didn't start getting psychological help through the VA until I was pretty much out of the house and moved out when I was 16. So, um, it was, you know, it was an experience, but the fun part of this, I think for my mom, is that I blamed her for everything. I thought my dad was a really fun, loving kind of a guy. He was always joking, always high energy, um, and she didn't appreciate a sense of humor. You know, why would you marry this really fun dude if you're just always bitching at him and you guys are always fighting? And I really felt like it was um, mostly her fault. And so my dad, I'm I'm a total daddy's girl. Like, my dad is my hero still, Um, and now I'm just finally starting to appreciate my mother's perspective, having to hold it all together in that, um, and my parents both being raised by alcoholics who were verbally, emotionally, and physically abusive, um, with one of my grandparents being accused by his foster daughter, um, multiple foster children being sexually abusive as well, is that they, genuinely genuinely i believe this as an adult now but didn't understand it as a child did much better than their parents Uh, and and that was obviously really deliberate and uh, so i can recognize that and appreciate that for them and i can't imagine growing up in the households that my parents grew up in but growing up in mine um i never had you know i'm not trying to bitch here you guys but if you study this kind of psychology not having your emotional needs met as a child being chronically misunderstood and experiencing being like an outsider in society from a very young age definitely has some long-term effects on the way we function um, and how we express our personalities and how we interact with the outside world. So I had that. Um, My relationship with my mother to like even my most early memories was a really complex relationship, Um, psychologically totally makes sense. Um, it was a very adversarial relationship, and that was mutual for sure, um, and a big reason of why it didn't work out, especially once I hit my teenage ages. And my parents were super into corporal punishment, as everyone I assumed was in the 90s. You know, uh, this is an Irish Sicilian Catholic household, definite wooden spoon jazz definite like dad, in my opinion, uh, taking it too far. Um, especially because of the PTSD, there were a lot of times where, you know, who I was dealing with was not my actual father and you'd look in their eyes and there's, there's not that person there. Um, and it's definitely, you know, it would be mutually validated when he would like stop himself and start apologizing and back off. Um, which was a really hard thing. That was the hardest thing for me, to see my dad so shaken by himself. Um, But also, I used that against him, in a genuine way, you guys, by, uh, you know, turning around and staring him dead in the eyes and being like, you know, God didn't give me to you for this. You know, this isn't how he expects you to treat me. And stuff like that, which I genuinely believed. So this wasn't, in, in my case, a manipulation. But... For survival skills and coping skills, I definitely was um, a really big liar. I'm told that as early as kindergarten with the nuns going into you know, uh, St. Joseph's, uh, I told them that I played all these instruments that obviously I didn't play. Um, I was constantly in trouble for lying. Um, I was obviously put on Ritalin at a really young age uh, because I didn't fit the mold of that Catholic school world. You know, Couldn't sit still, couldn't focus, super bored. Um, definitely want to talk to everyone in the class. I didn't have a real concept of like appropriate social behavior, um, so I was just too much for everyone, um, including my peers. And so, never really could get along with the social dynamics of female hierarchy. And so, I was like a typical '90s tomboy hanging out with the boys at school, proving myself to them, super, super proud that I wouldn't wince or tattle, you know, when they kicked the soccer rock at my shins, um, you know, have those awesome moments of like, they stare at you with absolute fear. Oh my God, is she going to tell Are we like never going to be able to like kick a rock around, um, in the parking lot that is our playground again. Um, but no, totally cool with it. I'm totally cool. So we're about 10 minutes in and I am talking about how super cool I am with a lack of pain in the face of brotherly acceptance. Um, but I don't want to spend too much time, on my background background. I just wanted to kind of lay some stuff out. So this is where we're at. We're at around 10-11. This is when I move for the first time that I can remember. I leave Catholic school. This is when I first go to public school in Cheshire, Connecticut, which is very fancy compared to my lower middle class suburban experience in Meriden, Connecticut up until then with kids that I've grown up with, some of them since Montessori. Um, And now I am in public school with a bunch of, you know, preppy, Waspy kids that I can't relate to at all and um don't fit into their society and so this is where it gets really fun. also, I mentioned earlier that I didn't have uh an emotional support person in my uh life in my younger years, but that wasn't exactly true um I did have my godmother, my mother's sister. Um, but unfortunately that was a really complicated thing. You know, this whole family ancestral karma and patterns and cycles and jazz, my sister and I hopefully, and I do believe have broken a three generation, at least cycle of sisters not being on speaking terms until they die. Literally. Um, the first time that I saw my great aunt Connie speak to my grandmother, my grandmother was in a coma. She came out of it for a moment. Um, but by the time that I had gotten them back into the room, She was asleep again um, and never woke up after that. But I do believe was aware that her sister was there to make peace at the end of their lives. My mother and her sister were equally uh, set up to continue this super not healthy, toxic relationship. Um, and it worked. My grandfather and the family unit pitted them against each other since my mother was born, uh, with her being the perfect blonde-haired, uh, blue-eyed Prince and my aunt Narda being blamed for everything and taking the brunt of everything. Um, and so when this was repeated in my generation, um, this is when it's just really fun. there's kind of sides my aunt, to a great extent, defends, protects, and shields me from this by being this one person in my world who, even if she can't understand me, I do believe at least from my perspective, accepted me and so it created this safe space. so we're very, very close. We're spending lots of weekends and ski trips in her home in Vermont together um and uh, part of the sickness of it is that since I don't accept my own mother as my mother, I'm kind of creating this maternal bond with my aunt, um, which obviously in turn is stoking my mother's fire, right? But, you know, when I'm around 11, my grandmother dies, we move to Cheshire to live in a condo near my grandfather, and shortly thereafter, uh, my aunt, you know, in going in, in tote with this family cycle, um, it- what do you call it disowned us um which you know for our family was at this point and what i grew up in totally normal totally abnormal and out of my potential concept of reality that the most important person in my life would do this, especially at such a young age. I didn't understand how it could even be happening um, or how it was justified. But this is something that was happening pretty regularly in my family. There were a lot of people that didn't speak to a lot of people, um, and that was really normal. Um, what wasn't normal was having family holidays where you have, like, your old godmother, aunt, best friend, uh, literally gas like, not gaslight, I'm sorry, but put me on blackout, which is something I don't experience till the family school. But ultimately, that's what it is is, you know, you're an 11 year old going up to your godmother trying to talk to her and she's quite literally pretending that you don't exist. Like she can't hear you and yada yada. And then your entire family, extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, everyone is there. Um, and everyone just watches it happen. Um, which you know, I'm again. I'm not blaming anyone for this. Like I psychologically understand where all of this came from. I'm at a place now. I'm thirty three years old. Where um, all I want to do is bless these people and understand their own suffering and their own human experience and why they do what they do. And that's very much where I am at my journey. Um, I don't harbor any resentment, but you know, these are just aspects of why, especially with complex PTSD being a relational disorder. Um, this is kind of why I'm, I'm there. So, uh, shortly after this time. Um, so this whole, my whole life I've been journaling. and I'm a writer. I used to write like little, uh, tiny books for kids at school for quarters so I could buy penny candy after school and jazz like that. So I wrote a paper and I believe it was seventh grade. It was my assignment. Um, I'd gotten lost on the way home from walking home from school in the woods for hours. These were woods I just genuinely didn't know. Um, I shouldn't have gotten that deep into them. I'm new in town, right? So, um, ish, newish at this point. I've been there a couple years. So Lost in the Woods for hours. Um, This is where I come up with the idea for my paper. When I get home, I have to like write my essay really quick. So I basically uh, uh, liken uh, squirrels Uh, jumping through the dead leaves like Jack the Ripper stalking you, right? Now, for the record, I know about Jack the Ripper because of my parents, right? So that's really not, that's not my fault. We're not living in a world where I don't even have internet access, right? So it's not like I'm learning this on my own. Uh, These are influence that my parents are agreeing to put into my world. But... Um, Cheshire Public Schools was very uncomfortable with this essay. And so this is when I start therapy. Um, this is also when I have my first IQ test. And this is also, to my knowledge, when we start pivoting me from, you know, being a normal kid uh, who's potentially has high expectations but is on Ritalin to help her succeed better to um, it being more classified as a disability. My mother was really trying to get me labeled as special ed and special needs um, as so that I could have access to little tools like uh, being able to go to my locker at any time because I forgot a book. Yada yada. At least that's how it's explained to me. Obviously, I'm rejecting most of these special needs, special ed, uh, you know, I don't know, assistance, if you will. Um, because I'm totally uncomfortable with it, but that's what we're doing. This is also the time period where the black lipstick comes out, right? I finally have a group of friends. Maybe they're from the wrong side of the track, but at least they don't judge me, right? And uh, it's a little bit easier for me to navigate the, like, wild and weird freaks, as we called ourselves back in uh, late 1999, early 2000. Um, so middle school is actually um, a really big game changer for me. Um, I'm learning most- most of my social skills at this point there, but I'm also in high speed rebellion. I no longer have anyone who understands me. Um, I go through three or four, therapists before I find the one that I'll stay with, um, for most of my middle school and high school experience, um, who was absolutely fantastic. And, and this is why we need mental health professionals that really can understand and work with kids because I put up a fight. I think there was probably a month, maybe I'm, I'm an over-exaggerator. So it's probably like one time that I just straight up refused to participate. Um, but you know, Joy, uh, she worked with me and, you know, probably... totally changed and saved my life. A lot of the coping skills that I learned and other ways to look at things um, were from those early years. And so naturally learned coping skills, which tie into the CPTSD. um, I'm a survivor. I've learned to be stoic in the face of high passion, um, hostile attack. Um, I've learned that if I panic, if I show fear, if I show any sort of emotion, it just makes it worse, Um, so I've learned to disassociate, I've learned to disassociate pretty effectively by the time I'm like 10, 11 years old, Um, I actually, journaling in 2000, um, literally journal from a two-party perspective, it's like very parts therapy, um, very self-abandonment, where I have this variation of myself, maybe I'll pull out those journals someday and share it with all, but where it's like, you know, I have to kill Miranda because she's too sensitive. She's too empathetic. She's always suffering with the suffering of the world and we won't make it. And so I'm going to kill her to protect her. And this stronger version of me is going to burn this world down, is kind of the experience. Um, I'm also very typical of, like, the old-school style, like, Zen meditations, right? Um, I still, to this day, walk in circles. It's a constant, constant thing. Um, You know, I'm sitting in the woods trying to imagine not existing. So my social life up until middle school is spent totally in solitude for the most part, grounded for the most part, in the woods. Um pretty much now what I understand is meditating or I guess imagining, but then it was just my imagination. I would just sit in the woods and completely imagine a new world. Um, and that would be my experience. Um, so, uh, yeah, so with the middle school jazz, we're prepping to get to Mercy, which was always the goal, the all girl Catholic school that I was groomed for because, My parents' parenting structure was very much a grooming, you know. Um, It wasn't about what I was interested in. In fact, if um, I was interested in something, usually it was mocked and derided until I gave it up. Um, Example, my dad's an artist. My grandfather's an artist. I'm from a family of artists. And so around middle school, early high school, I start uh, really focusing on drawing portraits But with only one eye, because I really can't make two eyes match up, so I'm drawing a lot of Lauren Bacall's and uh, Jessica Rabbit kind of style jazz. But my mother and father lovingly refer to these as my one-eyed monsters, right? Um, And can't you draw anything else? And blah, 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 they're so ugly and kind of horrific and ghoulish. Um, Which they were not, but they are now. The one-eyed monsters I make now are just completely monstrous. Um, But I gave it up. I stopped uh, doing visual artwork, even though um, I was naturally gifted with it. Um, but you know, not, and, and, and it's fun because I'm both at this time, like a total rebel against, you know, the opposition. I'm, I'm labeled oppositional defiance disorder at this point. Um, but let's like, let's just roll it back. Like I am not violent, um, other than with my sister and one time with my mother where she gave me permission to hit her. Um, uh, in a parking lot with a shopping cart. You know, it was a lot of fun. So I'm not that way. I don't sneak out. I'm not using any drugs. Um, I'm not having sex. I'm not skipping school. So it's nothing like this. It's just I don't feel like I'm being allowed to be me. And so at 12 to 13 to 14 years old, the priority in my life is to break through and express myself. And so as you can imagine, with an environment where um, It's supposed to be all very, like, uh, you know, tied up with a pretty bow and very uh, Connecticut conservative, you know, Catholic life, Um, which I am, too, because I'm an altar server and my faith is incredibly strong. When I'm younger, I call that Catholicism, but I actually read the Bible, right? Um, And so I had a lot of questions for the priests um, by middle school, like right before middle school, and they either couldn't answer them for me or they flat out denied my interpretation. And these were on some pretty obvious things. We're talking, I had questions like, wait in Matthew and Luke. And I think it's in three of them when they say, Jesus, your mother, brothers and sisters are at the gate. And he does, well, who are my brothers and sisters, but you under God. Um, I think that's a pretty clear statement that Jesus has mothers, like has, a, he has a mother, duh, has brothers and sisters, right? Um, I'm not really sure how I misinterpreted that, but, uh, they went with, I just completely misunderstood. And then <clears throat> when I was 12, Job just threw me for a loop y'all. Um for anyone who's read Job, you know what I mean. Um it's pretty freaking intense and I took it as uh God lets Satan torture people and do whatever the hell he wants because God's a psycho. Like I just I didn't understand it. Um now at my spiritual level uh and you know my expression right now, Job is probably maybe my favorite Old Testament book. Um it is actually the opposite of everything I thought it was. Um, and it's not just this really weird masochistic God tortures man shit. Um, so if those, if those conversations had been allowed with my priests when I was younger, um, I've had awesome conversations about both of those topics with Capuchin and Franciscan monks since then. Um, but at the time that was just like not a thing. So, you know, um, I'm veering off, I'm studying different spiritualities. Um, I think it, I think it's pretty relatable as far as who I was at that time. I do wind up going to Mercy, uh, the all girl Catholic school for until, uh, my junior year. So, uh, quick, I did choir. I am, um, actually not an extrovert at this point, but you know, with the energy levels then was I was volunteering three to four days a week with school extracurricular programs. I was the Amnesty international rep. I did justice and peace. I did my arc two days a week. I did the convalescent home, right? <clears throat> All that jazz. Um, I was in drama club. Um, I'm basically signing up for everything I possibly can that I don't literally loathe to avoid being home because my home life is incredibly unsafe. So I can have a totally different, different, different experience about my day. And then as soon as I get home, now it's bad. Like there's no way to avoid, um, it degrading into a full blown family argument, which is usually my fault. You know, the same time period that my parents, my parents have always been pretty at each other's throat. Um, by middle school, they, my mother, um, starts to blame their potential divorce on me. Excuse me, any more coffee? Um, And so, you know, and, and again, my coping mechanisms and survival skills are so good at this point that I really do understand that it doesn't have anything to do with me and that these are just projections, right? But this is how the home life is. Um, they're using different, uh, raising tactics for myself and my sister who's three years younger than me. Um, and there's a ton of sibling rivalry and we are deliberately pitted against each other by my grandfather so that he can continue what happened with his daughters. Um, so it's a lot of like twisted weird shit. So high school, super busy. I have really good friends in high school. I had all my freak weirdo friends in middle school who were epic and I love you guys. Um, but in high school I'm hanging out with, uh, the musical theater nerds, Um, I'm not hanging out with, I think I'm probably the worst influence with my high school group of friends at Mercy. Um, so there's really nothing to worry about, about where Miranda's going, but it's just the constant negativity and hostility at home. And so eventually what ends up happening when I'm 16 in my junior year, I'm still in therapy. I still have the same therapist. I'm not sure when I switch over to my second therapist who was a gentleman. Um, I think I only had him for about a year or two before I get sent to the family school. And after that, I don't have therapists until current day today. So, um, I don't know where I was. I'm just trying to be faster, but like not too fast because everyone's always like, you talk too fast. So, um, this is all going on. Um, and I am, you know, I I think that a lot of the stuff is my parents deliberately isolating me, like sending people to pick me up from school dances because I was grounded. But it's like, I need to like be involved with my community to be invested in it. Whatever. Um, so I'm a teenage girl. I am really high imagination, high passion, high empathy. I'm a very emotional being and I'm still being, I think I'm still being drugged. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm still being drugged or if I'm getting off it from the Ritalin, which um, is a big dark smog about my childhood, um, and as an adult, I really do think had a lot to do with emotionally and chemically throwing me off balance. Um, I had my first suicide attempt shortly after, uh, moving to Cheshire. So I was probably 12, 13, I was in middle school and I swallowed a couple bottles of multivitamins and then, you know, very dramatically Ophelia-esque went to bed and, um, woke up fine. I don't know how many hours later, um, But when I'm 16, there's a lot of intensity going on. And so I just genuinely just cannot do it anymore. Um, I have nowhere to escape. I have no outlet, uh, nobody to talk to. And everyone in my home is my enemy. Um, So I do overdose on Tylenol when I'm 16 years old. Um, I, you know, wrote everything I felt in Sharpie on the walls of my room as I'm slowly, um, falling into myself. Um, I do become slightly conscious hours later as my mother is dealing with me. Um, and you know, at this point still, I'm, I'm obviously, I think it's obvious overdosing. Um, and she's got me by my hair with my face in the mirror, asking me if I'm proud of myself and look what I've done kind of jazz. Um, my sister, wakes up, thank God, um, because of me, I think I was seizing against the toilet and stuff. It, it, all the commotion eventually woke up my sister. And as soon as my sister opened that door, um, it went from, you know, look what you've done to let's get in the car and go to the hospital and, uh, getting your stomach pumped is one of the most horrifying experiences physically ever. Um, and I was put, I believe I was put in a short-term coma, um, and, you know, obviously I'm still alive, guys. Um, but, at, at this point I get to, uh, opt, I think I had a choice to a certain extent, um, but I do go to the psych ward. I'm not sure if it's this time directly right after I get better, I think it is, um, and, I end up getting a DCF worker, like a social worker to pay attention to my case and keep track of it or whatnot. Um, And then over the course of the next year, um, my parents start to allow me to spend prolonged periods of time at my best friend, Paul. Remember I'm, a, I hang out with guys, his house, um, his mother was totally down. They even took me to Christmas, um, in, I think, New Hampshire to visit their family because my parents didn't want me around for Christmas and jazz like that. I think, but I've never asked my parents any questions about any of this. I think my parents at this point are already in a tough love group. I kind of think this, the simplest way would have been that once I was in the um, you know psych ward gone through the hospital system and they 'd gotten connected to resources for parents that they may have given them the option or introduced them to tough love um, i never i don't know I have no idea when the tough love jazz started so but I do believe that it was tough love being like, no, let her go. Stay with these guys. So I'm spending a lot of time with Paul and his family, uh, weeks at a time, um, weekends at a time regularly. And eventually what ends up happening is my parents come home from tough love and very like briskly tell me, so we've decided that it's best if you go live with Paul and Cindy. And um, I think we called her and she was down with it, and I was packed and out of the house immediately. Um, immediately. It was probably less than an hour. I think I'd already been partially packed anyways. Um, I'm not sure if they thought I was actually going to do it. I, I'm i not really sure what the strategy was around that. But it, um, with my parents' blessing and them asking Cindy to take me on as, you know, as some sort of custodial guardianship, uh, I moved out. And uh, this is either this late spring, early summer of my 16th to 17th year. My birthday is at the end of April. Um, and I honestly, I think I moved out when I was 16, but it's very possible that this was right after my birthday. I'm not sure. Um, again, I still think I was 16 because I always say that. So maybe that's true, but maybe that's not how truth works. So this is when shit gets real. So I'm continuing to go to my public high school, um, even though I am now living with my friend. Uh, We are not living in the public city limits that my high school was in. My parents still live there. They're still claiming me on their income taxes. But um, the first week of senior year in high school, my mother uh, goes to the high school and withdraws me from high school. And this is how messed up our system is, you guys. I can sign myself out, or at the time, because I'm hoping it's changed, but in 2003... I was legally allowed to sign myself out of high school by 16 years old, but I was not allowed to sign myself into high school until I was 18 years old. So both of these conditions were pending parental approval. So my mother was legally allowed to sign me out of high school, which I found out when I came back to school the next day after this had happened. And then I had to sit in the principal's office every single day. I was not even allowed to attend my courses while this was being sorted out because I literally wasn't enrolled at the school. So I had to sit in the principal's office so that I wouldn't be truant if at the end of the day they allowed me to continue going to school there. Um, But I don't have access to any of my classes. So it's just if you've ever had to sit in in-school suspension or, God forbid, you've actually been in an isolation room, which is way worse than this, um, it's pretty horrible to have to sit there for eight hours a day doing absolutely nothing, just reading books. Um, so that's what was going on. So, um, at one point, um, my parents who I'd had zero contact with since I moved out, I don't recall. No, I did. Ugh. uh, okay, fine. Really quick. Uh, the contact I did have with my parents was that I, there was one night or afternoon that I get a call, uh, Cindy gets a call from my dad. I don't have a cell phone, right? Um, and my dad tells me that he's, him and my mother are getting a divorce and that he's getting an apartment and I'm going to come live with him. <clears throat> and he told me that he'd be there in X amount of hours to pick me up. And so to have all my stuff ready. So just a you know, it's, after everything, I am still thrilled to hear this. So I pack up all my stuff and I put it up on her little wall and I sit there, you know, typical, like kicking your legs into the, like with the sun setting behind you on the lake, um, waiting for my daddy to show up. But my dad never shows up and I never, ever hear from my father again until, um, my parents, Organize this sit down meeting with the two of them and their tough love counselor um, who I was led to believe was some sort of professional in i don't know psychology or education I, I I don't know what I thought about the situation, and they told me that the reason they withdrew me from school was because they were afraid for my physical safety because of my suicidality and my depression. Um, which, for the record, at this point is not being expressed. I am again highly socially involved for the first time in my life. Totally socially involved. I have a boyfriend who's actually a really, really good person. My friends are not. Again, I'm still the probably the worst influence that my friends have. Um, I'm not skipping school. I am not doing drugs. You know, um, none of this jazz. So I'm not really sure what they're concerned about. Um, uh, but that's kind of the crux of it, right? They're like, we would appreciate if you would go do a 28 day evaluation, um, at this psych place. And if they say you're good, then we will sign educational guardianship over to Cindy so that you can go back to school. And so that, uh, you know, legally she can make all these decisions for you. Um, and we can work on a relationship. So I'm like, not really down. Um, I don't trust my parents. I've never trusted my parents. They're completely dangerous to me. Um, So I told my therapist about it and he's like, I have to go on vacation for a week. He's like, don't you dare go anywhere with your parents until I get back. He's like, if this offer is legit, then they'll honor the offer in a week. However, my parents per, you know, the way this stuff works are like, no, you have 24 hours to decide. So within those 24 hours, of course, my boyfriend and I got into like a fight. I feel like he didn't give me enough attention. And so I may or may not have like just broken up with him to make him cry. And, um, he didn't show up that night at my window, um, crying for me or something like that. That's what happened. And so then I decided, oh my God, you guys, you know what? I can teach him a motherfucking lesson. I'm going to go away for 28 days. He's going to miss me so much that he's really going to appreciate me when I'm back. Um, And for the record, this was like the healthiest relationship that I've ever had. Um, I'm still playing games because I'm raised in a narcissistic codependent household, but he's a really good guy. To this day, I, I love him. He's a really great guy. I'm so grateful that of all the human beings in the world, that the first person that I chose to be intimate emotionally and physically with is this human being because he is just as beautiful as I remember him. He really just is a good, amazing person. Um, hopefully once I work my shit out, I'll be capable of having a non, um, fuck with you relationship with someone equally as supportive and beautiful as a soul as he is. Um, so yeah, so my parents aren't having anything about it. um, I'm going to teach my boyfriend a lesson and so I call my parents in the middle of the night and I hop in the car or I plan to be, get in the car first thing in the morning. I'm really not sure if I even told who I told that my parents were picking me up. I don't know. I really did believe it was just going to be 28 days and they took me to this place, Dobbs Ferry in upstate New York, and as soon as we crossed state lines, the laws totally changed. And at 16, I no longer had the right to sign myself out of anything. And now I had to be 18, but I'm 17. I'm not 18 yet. So I lose any sort of freedom for the next almost a year. So at this point, I'm checked into Dobbs Ferry Children's Village for my evaluation. Um, And I don't wanna spend really much time on Dobbs Ferry. Perhaps it would be more significant if it weren't overshadowed by the family school, which is where I am referred to. I'm referred to the family foundation school for long-term institutionalized residential treatment because during my 20-something day evaluation at Dobbs Ferry, I had shown that I was very successful and very stable in a structured, residential, institutionalized environment because based on my parents' um, statements about what my life was like prior, clearly this 28 days was very beneficial for me and the only way for prolonged success would be to keep me institutionalized. Um, I was shown a cursory brochure of the family school, I was given another IQ test, um, and I guess. The most significant memory for me about my experience there was that they did allow me, someone allowed me, I I don't remember who, to hop on a phone real quick and call my boyfriend at the time, you know, which was obviously the most important thing in my 17 year old life was to let him know that I wasn't coming home. Um, and you know, obviously we we're going to wait for each other. And so I would then use this relationship, um, to kind of keep me motivated and sane throughout the next part of my experience. The girls that I met in the, uh, crisis intervention, uh, part of Dobbs Ferry, we were in like that preliminary evaluation area, not the long-term residential placement. Um, really this is when the kinds of, uh, peers that I'm surrounded by, changes and this will change for the rest of my life um i will no longer feel comfortable around super normal um catholic connecticut upstanding citizen kind of people um instead now um i'm only going to after this whole experience i'm really only going to be able to relate to people who've been smashed to pieces and put themselves back together because looking through you know a standard plain Glass plane is uh just super boring compared to the mosaics of these kinds of people who I will come to relate to um but it really puts my whole life and self-pity shit in perspective to be confined with these other girls, most of which are younger than me. I think I may have been one of the older ones. A girl that was younger than me had a two-year-old daughter from sexual assault. She'd been sexually trafficked out of the Bahamas. Um, There was a 12-year-old who'd lived her entire life in foster care system. She had mental disabilities as a result of her mother being a drug addict when she had her. Um, And these were just these girls were beautiful and managed to find so much joy in such dark experiences and places. I mean, if you really want to talk about coping skills and disassociation and all this, I mean, these girls were magnificent. Um, I don't understand how they had so much strength or whatever it was. Um, Uh, but it really, really put it in perspective. They were dealing with real life shit. You know, these kids had been literally abandoned, literally trafficked. Uh, most of them had been sexually assaulted. Um, this wasn't, no one was coming from the situation where, um, my parents just, and I didn't get along and they just thought I was troubled because I wouldn't do what they wanted Um, me to do. Um, this was like some real life jazz for these girls and it wasn't going to be okay for them. Um, there was nobody rooting for most of them on the other side. I had a support system granted. They didn't know where I was and I wouldn't have any contact with them until I turned 18. Um, but, um, it just, this is when my mind just starts to blow open. Um, I was escorted in either the middle of the night or the early morning. It was still dark by two large gentlemen, one which I believe I recognized um, as my parents' tough love counselor. Um, and one of, if not both of my parents were also in the car and we drove upstate to Hancock, New York out into the Catskill Mountains. And that's where I get to the next stage in one of the most significant experiences of my life. At this point for me, I had nothing left to say to my parents. Um, I begged my father, oh, so my father was there, I begged my father not to leave me here, that he knew that this was a mistake, and probably told them I wasn't going to forgive them ever, Um, and they were dead to me, I'm not sure, whatever. They brought me into the female locker room where a couple other students about my age who were a little bit more senior, had been there for a while, were a little bit more um, calm and comfortable with their environment, or at least they could appear that way, uh, helped me to unpack with a staff present. They took pretty much everything, my journals. um, I had, you know, this is the kind of kid I am, right? Like I have like a dried leaf with, um, a blessing on it from a time that my, you know, whatever. And I've always kept that. And yeah, they took that away. Every, they took everything away that was part of your identity from your former life. Um, and the only thing of contraband that I snuck in, which that's a fun story in and of itself when that finally comes out at the school but it was my boyfriend's shirt. So I actually managed to sneak in my boyfriend's shirt, which smelled like him. You guys, come on, I'm 17. Um, and I would end up sleeping with this, um, for the next, most of the months that I'm there, um, as a real security blanket. It does smell like him the entire time, by the way. So that was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, anyways, So this is kind of when you're being debriefed, intaked, um, a really fun part of this. And, uh, when, and if we finish any narrative version of this, I'm not sure at what point I want any of this information to come out, but one of the girls that was debriefing me, her father was actually my parents' tough love counselor. So this is actually the way these places work. There were multiple kids at this one school that were from the same tough love circle, um, and this is probably because parents would get discounts on their highly expensive. We're talking. I think the family foundation school when I was there was forty thousand a year. So they would get a discount for the more kids that they referred there that have ended up going. Um, and so I had no idea. I did not find this information out until after. I left the school, but this girl uh, that that was a situation. So intake is very surreal. Um, uh, it it's this point where you are forced to accept the reality of your circumstances. Your parents have left you. Um, at least for me, I'm constantly multiple times throughout the next couple weeks, actually. Uh, demanding to speak with Child Protective Services or the police um, and, you know, letting them know I have a right to contact CPS, or at least that's what I believed. Um, I'm not even sure if that was true back then because it's not necessarily true in most of these programs now. Um, And so you're trying to get in contact with someone who can let them know what's really going on. Um, You know, uh, they're telling me that I'm going to be here until I finish my program, or as I would soon find, or until you turn 18, if you should decide to walk. Um, Otherwise, there's no way out. And for me, um, you know, I'm very open with, well, I'm 17, I'm going to be 18 in a few months, so obviously I'm just going to walk then. Uh, what's the point of all this just for a few months. And, uh, so their big motivator with me, which is brought in at some point during intake is that this whole 18 months, um, I'm sorry, 18 years where all of a sudden you're an adult and you have rights, um, may be true unless you get mandated to the program until completion. So this threat of mandation for me is going to wind up being the most powerful tool the school has against me. So there are a lot of reasons, you know, like people who have not been in these experiences will be like, well, why didn't you run away? Firstly, there were a lot of people who did run away. Um, Most of them came back. Um, most of the ones that are relevant in my experience, I'm total witness syndrome, total, you know, from a writer perspective, right? I'm looking at everybody's perspective and watching their stories unfold. And I'm usually like a very narrator experience in life. So I am the least abused at the family foundation school from when I was there. Um, I wholeheartedly believe that. And a lot of the people who were significant for my story, when they came back after running away they were not themselves anymore. Horrific, horrific things happened to kids who ran away and it was almost more scary if they weren't returned because you didn't know what happened to them. Um, but this will be something, you know, that I, we start to see happen. So, um, I didn't run away and I'm not throwing a fit, um, or staging any, large protests initially at this point, because initially I'm still thinking I can talk to CPS. Like at some point they're going to check in with me and, and this is going to get reviewed very quickly in the first few days. It's not a big deal. Um, but so, yeah, so I'm intaked by these girls. Um, they uh, then are taking me. I end up my family. So the school, the Family Foundation School, which is a Sinanon based school. Sinanon is the cult uh, that was closed by the FBI after they tried to assassinate attorney Paul Moretz by putting a uh, poisonous snake in his mailbox. Um, they were closed down in the 90s. But Synanon had a New York location, Eastridge, and the Argyros family who raised their kids, I think, pretty much in Eastridge, decided to make the family school in the late 70s, early 80s, I believe, Um, while Synodon was still functional and Eastridge was still functional. They bought another piece of property, I believe it's a separate piece of property, and started this program. Um, And then when Synodon closed, the family school is still functional, right, because it's owned by the Argyroses. It's kind of a separate thing. But they're using the same jazz. Um, And it is AA-based, or at least that's how they say to us, I've never actually been to AA outside of the family school, so I'm not sure if they use attack therapy, but I, I don't think they would um and uh but we'll get into attack therapy. So the family school uh is family based and so you've got these adults who are family leaders. Um there's two parents in every family and there's like uh I don't know, like four or five male and female adult staff per family, uh something like that. There's usually around thirty kids per family. Meredith says there are eight families. I wanted to believe there are ten, but Meredith was there for three plus years, so she knows better. Um so there's eight families. I am in family three. For the entirety of my stay, Family 3, the family leaders are Mike and Cindy Argiros. Mike is uh, the successor of Tony and Betty Argyros. Um So he runs the school with his wife, Cindy. And so we're kind of in, uh, you know, the main family, the leader's family. Um, but when I get there, Family 3 is actually on some sort of field trip. So they're not there at all. So for my first weekend after being intaked, I am not in Family 3. And instead, I go to another family, the family with this girl whose dad convinced my parents to send me there, Um, and my temporary weekend sponsor um, is this beautiful, beautiful human being named Lisa. So Lisa is a junior sponsor. That means she has come pretty far in her program. I think she'd been there for a couple years at this point, Um, I think, By the time I learned more about her while she was still at the school, she'd already been there for three. So, it's really hard to imagine Lisa as a troubled teen because she's so compassionate and uh such a leader. You know, um still I've I've hung out with Lisa after the school and she's just a diplomat and she's a beautiful person and that beauty is from the inside out and it's on the outside too. So, she's one of those beautiful people that is just really hard not to love and I was so blessed to have her as this temporary um guardian, I guess, pure guardian, but, and, and it's, it's called a junior sponsor, but the thing with these experiences, um, that are really important, um, and we will have an entire episode with both Meredith and myself, so we can get really into this and I'll touch on a few in my story, but the light in the darkness is, is breathtaking, you guys, like, and, and manifesting your own reality. I mean, the books that I read as a teenager, like, set this up. I never promised you a rose garden, um, ordinary people. Will there really be a morning? I, I was reading Orwell and, uh, Dostoevsky, very dystopic and existentialist jazz. And I loved the stories of brilliant, unique young women stuck in an institution until they find this beautiful disassociative acceptance of, their situation. And so look at what happened to me, you know, so careful what you read, y'all. Um But Lisa in taking me that first weekend was a very gentle introduction. And I don't know how I would have responded had I immediately gone into Family 3 with my junior sponsor, who I won't name, because this isn't something that she uh, likes to talk about in her personal life. So, but my real junior sponsor, my real family, if that had been my first initial experience, um, based on how I feel about myself, I'm pretty sure I would have wilded out. I'm really sure because once I do go into my family, it is just the culture shock is real. So, Lisa's family was a little bit more of an intellectual family, was a little bit more of a, um, at least like more like my real family in real life where at least from that weekend experience, it felt like they just, they still wanted that face of um, intellectual superiority and control. Whereas my family was more into the attack therapy, primitive breakdown jazz. I'm not saying hers wasn't and uh, maybe she'll tell us sometime um, if she's comfortable with that, but it was different. And also, so for when, after intake with your junior sponsor, they're walking you through the rules as much as you can like absorb, um, at the time as they can. So there's a first, uh, I don't know if it's the first 24 hours or whatnot, where you don't get outright punished, um, for screwing up. It's 24 hours to three days, um, because you don't know all the rules. And there are so many rules that I promise you're still learning them for most of the first six months, at least, um, at least three months. Um, but Certainly in the first three days, there's no way you could remember all the rules, right? So your junior sponsor is responsible for showing you the ropes and letting you know what's expected and and letting you know, like how things work here. And this is your reality and getting you to accept it. So, um, because usually your junior sponsor is going to be responsible for your progress in in a certain amount of, you know, there's a certain amount of responsibility there. They will be held held accountable if their junior sponsee is like not progressing or yada yada. Um, you know, just another way to get sibling rivalry going. Um, but that wasn't the case with Lisa. And I think Lisa was also in taking her own junior sponsee, um, which is the only reason I was allowed to speak to her during that time. But not only did Lisa really consciously and deliberately try to like protect my psychological transition into this dystopic nightmare of a sci-fi novel that we were doing. But she also is the reason that I'm not part of the Me Too movement. And I do believe that, um, you know, in part of her, like, what did you used to do at home? You know, tr- like you can do some of that stuff here, you know, try to keep me from losing my shit. Um, I told her, you know, obviously among other things I was in, I've been in choir for years. It's something I do. And she very diplomatically, cause this is Lisa informed me that no, in fact, I don't, I, I no longer do choir. Lisa did choir and I no longer did choir. And I don't know what she said to me. And she wasn't the only one, but she was the first and most firm about it. But she notified me that the choir teacher was a pedophile and that I was no longer involved in choir. And because upon intake Or with my parents intake, they'd been like, yeah, Miranda does choir. When I did get to my family, they did expect me to do choir. And I, with coaxing from, I don't know if it was from Lisa or one of the secondary people who informed me that, no, I don't do choir anymore. Um, I managed to manipulate the situation by telling the family leaders that, you know, like if I was really trying to be a new me, that anything related to my old image would be a negative influence. And so like, maybe I should try something different from choir. Um, and so that saves me from potentially becoming a target of a known, uh, sexual, a child sexual predator. Perhaps my gratitude for Lisa for that that one act, let alone just the whole appreciation for my sanity and and the compassion that she showed me, which was some of the last compassion I would experience for at least a few more months. Um, I don't know that I can verbalize it on this podcast. I don't think that I can get that across. I maybe in words so that we could go through that journey on a, on a kind of somatic visual. But, um, even if I balled my little heart out with all the feels that I feel for her, um, it, it doesn't get it across. And, and this is the thing about surviving something with someone. Um, this is a, this is a sisterhood and I mean, it's not a pretty one survivor fighting and survivor bullying's a real thing too. But even though we don't walk our paths outside of the programs together all the time and we don't have the same political opinions or religious opinions, none of us do, right? You guys, there's still this sister acceptance. And this goes for my brothers too, because God, I love Colin and Matt so much, um, that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like you, there's a, I don't know how to put it. It's I I guess it's the same thing when you survive a war with someone, it doesn't matter who they are as this personality. Like you guys were real and really went through something that's surreal beyond real. It is so raw and real that none of the rest of it matters. And especially for those people who, in these insane moments, reach through and are just totally real. And I just want to—I just want to put it out there. If, if anyone, if I had tattled on Lisa, if I had mentioned what she'd said to me to anyone, or any of the tones she'd used with me, um, she would have been severely, severely punished. So she took a huge risk. It. She put herself at risk to prevent this girl this child that she didn't know and had nothing you know we there's no bond there from becoming a target of a sexual predator because that was the right thing to do and it, and she was already already in like the red zone with this guy so for her to put herself out there for me she didn't know me she didn't know what I was going to do with that information i could have very easily just gone to someone else and been like hey lisa said this is it true and it would have been all over for her um and there are the bravery and the selfless fortitude and the self-sacrifice that I have personally witnessed children display in these environments that most adults, honestly, most adults couldn't even handle this. And I saw children reach out against like their own, like instinctual survival to protect someone else or to just be present for someone else while, because we didn't have, you couldn't save anyone, but you could sometimes, and again, always at great risk to yourself, be present for another individual. And it meant all the difference because the social and psychological isolation of being mass gaslit and mass manipulated and having your behavior modified and your brain washed and having another human reach through that like hallucination that illusion through to you and be like okay you're not crazy i'm not crazy it's it's okay and i mean it's not okay it's, and i don't know if it'll be okay later but it this is real and um your perception of it is real and sometimes eye contact during attack therapy was the most profound human connection I've still ever had in my life. Um, it was just outside of this dimension, man. Whew. So, Oh, sorry guys. Getting all emotional. So I had to pause. So reality comes, um, when family three gets back and I get sent down to family three. Um, and this stuff is just so much fun. I don't personally relate to my junior sponsor. Um, she's a beautiful person. I have nothing negative to say about her, but we just don't, you know, you can go through something and not relate to someone. And and that is just the reality. Um, and it's a dangerous relationship with your junior sponsor as it is with your junior sponsee. Um, you are required to proactively, like uh, debrief adults on everything that the other one is doing. Well, at least top down, right? Um, And uh, my actual sponsor, the adult that's my sponsor, because again, we're using a lot of AA terminology. We are reading the big book and all that jazz. Um, And I'm in the first wave of EA, but the EA didn't exist initially when I got there and it starts to pop in a little after. Um, My adult sponsor is again... Another light in the darkness. Thank you. Thank you, universe, for all of these beautiful, beautiful um, side support systems. Uh, Not saying that anybody proactively saved me or anything beautiful like that, other than Cindy, the woman I'd lived with before, and a psychologist we'll talk about later, who comes and visits me a couple times. Um, But Tina, my sponsor... I could, there's no other human, uh, maybe Betty Rosengrant, but there's no other human at the family school that would have been a better sponsor for me. Um, I was her first. So obviously she was like really, uh, ramped up to expect me to be a complete manipulator. And so it takes a while for Tina to finally start believing my narrative of who I am. And, um, that is fun that gets fun. Um, but so, uh, initially uh, at the family school, you are shadowed 24-7 by your junior sponsor. Um, and I do mean 24-7. Uh, you have to, if you're in the school when you pee, um, there are urinals with doors, but you have to leave the door open. Um, and uh, <laughs> and then in the dorms, our toilet, the family three girls dorm, uh, the toilet was literally inside our shared closet. So you have one closet you share and then you have, I think you can you put your like regular bag that you came with under your bed. That's all anybody really comes with. Right. Um, and then the dorm closet is shared clothes. Um, especially for the girls who nothing was acceptable. Or if you're on like poverty where they make you wear like a bunch of standard sweats all the time, if you think you're pretty, they'll put you on poverty. Um, no makeup, no accessories, hair in a bun, these really whatever sweats. Um, so the toilet is in the closet. So it took me a while to poop. I think that that's something for a lot of people. Um I I hear a lot of people say they have poop and food issues, which makes sense because this was like all the time kind of jazz. Um, and, uh, so we're sitting at our first meal and I need someone to pass a condiment knowing me it's probably ketchup. So I tap this dude to the right of me and this dude ends up being a long-term part of my life story, but, uh, um, and he freaks out. Like you would have thought I'd stabbed him in the shoulder with a knife, you guys, but you're not supposed to touch boys. This is how I find that out. Um, That one was good. You're initially on six months blackout. Blackout is you don't exist to me, no eye contact, um, no anything like, so it doesn't matter if you try to have a full fledged conversation. I'm not going to eye contact. I'm not going to respond to you. And then I'm going to report you to my junior sponsor is how that's supposed to go. Um, so you're on six months blackout when you first get there. That, uh, six months means anyone who hasn't been there over six months, you can't talk to, uh, including usually your own family. Although a lot of blackouts are off during, um, or certain sanctions are off during meals because you're having family topics. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Um, uh, the first time I get called up at a family topic that I remember other than my probably initial intake topic, which Miranda's whole thing. And this is really fun. How they use me is like, uh, it you have to first step and admit why you're here. Um, because I refuse to admit that I was an alcoholic because I'd only been drunk, uh, I think two times, uh, prior to being at the family school and they'd been years ago. Um, and I wasn't a drug addict and I wasn't a whore. They're, you know, they're really big on promiscuity. Um, a lot of girls had been sexually assaulted and that was pretty much their fault because we're, you know, whatever, whores. Um, uh, and so my first topic, other than that initial, why are you here thing, which will repeat my entire stay at the school, uh, was uh, the fun, this is fun. And I, uh, i told myself I would be very careful how I put this. Okay, so there's this guy that I meet at my first meal and he is really a really nice guy um i I generally feel safer um, I do feel safe around males but um, I I'm very comfortable with people who are different um, and this guy seemed like he was uh, very socially. Different, like um, and so I felt safe with him, like I didn't feel like he was going to attempt to manipulate me um and uh, so yeah, I sought him out. I th- thought that he was a genuine, pure, safe person, and so we would sit near each other at meals i I don't even remember like if they were assigned seats, but I sat next to him quite often, and he was one of the main people I would talk to because the others oftentimes they're especially with my thing, why is she here? they're trying to pull stuff out of you um. And it's dangerous, and I just didn't feel like he was dangerous. So very soon into being at the school, he actually calls me up at a table topic to call me out for flirting with him and trying to pull him into a negative contract. And a negative contract is like, we agree to be negative together and everything's pretty Everything's negative. You know, if your brother or sister's at the school, obviously if you had any contact with them at all, it would be negative. So you're on blackout with your brother and sister, which I think is really insane and psychologically destructive y'all. Um, but anyways, this guy's pulling me up on, and I am just flabbergasted is a, like a genuine description. I am like, no way I have a boyfriend and I love him and I would never cheat on him. And I'm just trying basically to not be like, dude, like I would never, no one believes this, right? Like that I would be into this dude, like what's up? Um, but they did whatever. Um, and so that was a fun table topic. Um, I had a hard time accepting my being stuck there. I just still for, it was, it was, I would waver between utilizing my coping skills of disassociation and survival, which thank God, thank you, dad and mom for teaching me them. Um, at a young age, because if I had, didn't have them, I don't think I would have been able to stay on my own side and survive in any level of sanity. Like for majority of the family school experience. I, while I may not have been able to hold my shit together, I was on my own side and I had my own back. And so I can't, um, if you don't understand how that kind of jazz, like your relationship with self works, um, I'm not sure if I can explain it, but like if you've abandoned yourself, if you're not on your own side, then you're just totally lost. Um, so that was like a really big part of it. Um, but yeah. So I am trying to get pretty much every adult that I can talk to privately since I've been very public and vocal about this to allow me to call 911. Um I don't there are there is no access to phones. There is one phone in each family. Um it's used for the phone calls home which I'm not sure how often you get those if it's weekly or monthly because I didn't get them. So um the whole time I was there I don't think I ever spoke to my parents on the phone maybe once and it was maybe as brief as, are you going to take me out? And they were like, no. And I was like, goodbye. You know, it would have probably been it. <clears throat> um, the thing with my first phone call, though, I did, uh, I don't, I think I was granted it. I don't know. Um, there was a thing with my first phone call, because I do remember at one point sitting by the phone in, in the family. Um, and this was the fun part was like that I'm blamed for all the stress in my parents' life and potentially them possibly getting a divorce. And so by the time my first phone call comes up, it's not accessible because my parents had um I'll try not to be like flippant. Uh, Let's be an adult about the way we say this. Uh, My parents had enrolled me in the delightful boarding school and then pretty immediately gone on their first European vacation as a couple. And they went to Sicily. um, And so by the time I'm supposed to call my parents, I don't even get to talk to them because they're gallivanting around the world on a vacation while I am suffering through uh, the handmaiden's tale uh, separate from the, you know, impregnation shit or blackmail whatever, whatever you're comfortable accepting. Although the handmaiden's tale is like really on point, you guys. Like that's really how these social like brainwashing experience things go. So basically I'm trying to get all of the adults to let me use a phone to call the police, um, or CPS. I'm trying to convince them that, um, I don't belong here. That initially, I think it's really... <laughs> Uh, and this is what they used. Um, you know, it's easy for me to assist you in painting me, especially at that time or in that situation as, uh, someone with a superiority complex, because I didn't believe I needed to be there. And it was believable that this kind of environment would exist for kids who, you know, we're really defiant. Um, especially because of the background that I'm coming from, um, we're like, just, just to clarify, like at 33, I still believe that if my parents knew everything that went down at the family school, which they may, that they're still cool with it. Um, this Christmas was the first time ever, um, and we're talking up to 15 years after that we've had a Christmas dinner where my parents literally didn't be like, I really wish you'd stayed at the family school because your life wouldn't be such a shit fest, you know, um, kind of a thing. They don't say shit fest, that's like my word, but um, that kind of jazz. So uh, my parents, my dad was at military school and um, my the homes that my parents came from and the way that they parented me, it made sense that this was uh, an appropriate choice for someone to use on their child. And the way that they paint you guys to each other is this really exaggerated, blown-up reality that for most of the kids there was not at all true. Um, The family school especially, and now it has people paint at least with the boarding school aspect, that these are wealthy, um, like children from wealthy homes that are spoiled and that may be, um, pill popping sluts or, you know, getting drunk, stealing dad's Ferrari and totaling it, which those kids were totally there. Like, I'm not saying they weren't there. Um, I don't think that they were a majority. Uh, There was a really big part of the population that were genuinely there because a step-parent really didn't want to deal with um, the rebellion, um, or a a lot of them were being raised by grandparents that couldn't deal with ADHD, uh, video game addictions, talking back, uh, stuff like that, and so they'd sent their kids to this place. Um, And for a lot of those people, and also the kids that were sent by the court systems or through DCF or through their public school as a special ed case or whatnot. Uh, These programs were not paid for by the family itself. So I know that they're really expensive and so that it's easy to assume, and especially because a lot of the people who've spoken out, you know, you can look at me that way too, right? I grew up in suburban Connecticut, went to private school. Um, I could fit that mold if you don't take into account that like my dad was a mechanic that was like never home as a union mechanic. And, um, you know, he, like my parents like built all of this for themselves and we were still lower middle class. So, um, it's, it was a pretty wide array of kids, um, that are going to the school and, um, So yeah, I forgot what my point was. Uh, we were talking about shit. I remember, I remember. Okay. So, uh, my point was the way they paint you to yourselves. So, or to each other as well. So they're painting someone like me, like, um, I'm too good to be here. Uh, I think everybody else is a drug addict or a slut or a social reject. And I need to have my arrogance. Like, they were really big on me being arrogant and feeling superior. Which, if you know me personally, you know is um, maybe it's been part of my experience. Uh, You know, I just have a really weird way of looking at the world. I've gone through stages where I didn't think anyone else really existed. And this was all a dream in my mind. You know, so there's that stuff. And it's not not true. Um, And they were really good about uh, using the information they had on you um, to like create a narrative that was believable for everybody else. Um, but so they would do stuff like that with people like me. And then that's also how they used me against my peer group because my peers would believe that about me. So they believed that I was judging them. Um, and that I thought I was better than them and I didn't think I needed to be there. And, uh, you got to understand, especially for some of these kids who'd been there for years and been beaten into this sense of, um, not a sense of, but actual surrender. Surrendering was the first step, right? Admit you have a problem and surrender. Um, you know, you have no power over yourself and all this other jazz. Um, and so those kids had done that work and they'd been through this and how dare I, like I, I just got here and I don't think I need to be here. And I think they do. Um, and it, and from a very real level, uh, like it comes from a perspective of, I think that they deserve to be abused and I don't right. And the fun part, especially for me is I'm not even seeing this as child abuse yet, uh, especially in the beginning, like later on, um, I'm able to form Uh, I don't know. I know that this is wrong. I don't drink the Kool-Aid at any point in my experience. I know it's wrong. I've read a lot of books that use this weird jazz. Um, and it's horrifying to me and I can't believe it's happening. And I'm sure that if a sane human being, uh, of, and a power of authority would would just walk in unannounced that they would also agree that a lot of this is completely unacceptable. But the day to day especially the school stuff and when the top family like table topics or the house topics aren't about you um and if you have a slow introduction into like the severity of the sanctions um I don't know. And then also, I I think for me too, just like coming from my home experience, this was a lot, and the books I'd read, this was a lot easier for me to accept. Uh, It was hard for me to accept that it was really happening, that it was really happening to me, and that it was really happening in America. But once I got over that initial shock, um, I knew what kind of demon I was facing, right? Um, And so, I don't know. I'm, I was highly adaptive. I was highly adaptive as a survival skill. And this is the most adaptive that I will, this is my peak. This is my climax. Family school is totally my climax. I learn and, and learn to use the skills I've already learned, um, uh, to survive to an extent where, um, I mean, I genuinely, with a lot of the people that I've met in life, I think a majority of people put in this situation, especially as adults, if they were adults, would become suicidal I, or run away or freak out and wind up in prison or whatever the case may be because it is genuinely, like, it just breaks your brain. It just totally breaks your brain. Um, you know, depending, but if you were to come from an extremely violent um, in an extremely emotionally and verbally mentally abusive world. Anyways, um, there are certain aspects of it where you're like, Oh, I, I know this beast and you know, this is how we're going to rock it. Um, so there's that, but also the kids that were the bad kids, um, I don't know if they really were either. You know, I know that there were a lot of when they would tell us their story, which is, you know, the kind of thing I'm trying to do now, but you know, Really sucking at it. Um, you know, some of these kids had killed people. Most of the ones who'd killed people, it was accidental. It was drunk driving or drug related, you know. Um and they were victims themselves. Like these kids were suffering PTSD as a result of being and holding themselves responsible and being held responsible regularly as killers, as murderers. Um, and they're just kids. And and see, this is the important thing if you value science at all is that um, th- this kind of stressor, this prolonged exposure to stress hormones that you cannot fight or flight, fawn or faint from, is it creates brain damage um, and beyond all of these coping skills, which no longer serve us. And my therapist wants me to be grateful that the coping skills kept me alive thus far. Um, but right now they're ruining my fucking life. Um, I mean, these things only go so far. And, um, in a lot of cases, I think that it's it, the best case scenario you're going to get is like a repressed processing of what you went through. Um, but even those kids that were, you know, drug dealing hoodlums, um, they had stories that made it make sense. You know, when you look at it from an, a trauma informed perspective, uh, most of these kids are coming from either broken homes or homes where they have a narcissist parent that's abusing them on some level. And so, you know, it all makes sense. I don't understand how none of this makes sense. And that's why I think when you look at these kinds of programs as a viable option currently, um, you know, pretend that they don't have the child abuse mentality there. Um, it, does it still even work aside from the possibility to remove a child from an unsafe situation? Like I had when I went to Paul's now, if there were ways that kids could go off to genuine therapeutic boarding homes where they're trauma-informed and they're treating the child as someone who's gone through trauma, um, and they it's compassionate response instead of, you know, hostile attack therapy, then I'm not sure that just fundamentally they work because you're isolating this child, um, and you're treating them as the problem when they're fucking not like very rarely are they. And also if they are a sociopath or, or, or a narcissist or anything on that, like, um, personality attitude disorder, jazz, um, this kind of program is not going to fucking work for them anyways. Like it's, it's just going to teach them how to manipulate on a far superior scale and it's going to give them an entire population of people to practice on. Um, there were anchors. Anchor is like, I think Meredith called them RAs. Maybe that's what they're called. Um, there, I really haven't had a lot of how did things work and what were things called conversations with people, um, in the past 15 years or in the past couple of years where it's been my main focus in my uh, healing journey. Uh, mostly my conversations have been, about how we're doing now, um, how the school affected us. And, you know, I remember this with you and it broke my heart or thank you so much. Like that, that's what those conversations are. Um, I don't want, I, I, I've my view of a lot of the psychology jazz is I've always been super anti anything where it's childhood blaming because I'm super high vigilance on my own personal responsibility which comes from being raised Catholic but it also comes from the family school especially with taking your inventory I still take my personal inventory that is a tool that, if I could learn to use it correctly instead of against myself, um, was very beneficial that I learned from AA and from the family school. Um, but unfortunately, the way I was taught to use it was a really negative way, um, which it just—it's counterintuitive because instead of just being able to be open and honest about my failings and shortcomings and where I thought or did wrong in my day, um, I'm not choosing better or becoming better because I'm just getting stuck in the blame cycle of it. And so I'm not, um, thinking or feeling my way to better solutions. So, and that's the thing too. It's like, there's a lot of people from these programs who'll be like, I learned some really epic skills and that's fucking true. You guys, like there are some skills and uh, some good ideas to be taken from pretty much every cult that's ever existed. Fight me, fight me on it. Right. Um, the problem is that most of the time, um, I'm not a Sith, I'm not going to deal in absolutes here, but most of the time, um, I do think those, because they're coming from a, like the wrong intention and they're being perverted, they become their opposites. They become psychologically damaging instead of, you know, a, a psychological tool that someone can use effectively to better their lives. Um, and so that's kind of something that we're dealing with in these programs. But the narratives of identity um, for yourself and others is really a big thing. Um, I don't even know how they came about because as far as kids from other families, a lot of times, and especially for the first couple months while you're on a six-month blackout anyways, you don't really have much contact with them. But still, I remember narratives being constructed for members of other families, including one who has been one of the uh thank you, thank you, I don't even know what words to use, but thank you, thank you for advocating for all of us and being a part of shutting down our school and bringing everything forward in a public light, and he's built a beautiful life for himself, not too far from me, has a beautiful woman in his life who loves and supports him and, and has walked this journey with him to heal um, and they advocate for and help others um, continue their healing and get access to those resources he's a beautiful, beautiful freaking person and my perspective of him um, before this narrative was told to me was that he seemed like a really sweet, shy, nice kid. I never ever spoke a word to this kid, but he actually is like a main character in my story because I always saw him because he was on exile so often that he was in the hallway that our family shared. Um, or when I was on work sanction, we were on work sanction together, all of these things. And for whatever reason, this kid, this quiet, um, you know, pensive introverted kid was on my radar. Um, and then over the course of the first few months that I was there, um, the narrative of him of being a pervert and, um, a psychopath came across and it total it was just and it and it worked. Um I'm not saying I believed that about him. I'm just saying that you would question it. I most people did believe these things that were told about each other, but it does feed into your perspective of a person that you especially cannot speak to. So you kind of have like this silent mime-like relationship coexisting with some other people and then everything you hear about them is the social narrative that they're spreading amongst the entire family school so that everyone can participate in whatever this victim shaming is. You know, if she was sexually assaulted by a family member because she's a slut and wanted it. And so we're all going to participate in, you know, treating her like a slut. Um, or if, you know, he's a virgin, pervert um maybe because he admitted he'd masturbated um so now he's a virgin pervert and all the girls are you know vibe wise like it, and this is something cool I learned from the family school is like how much of a relationship and an interaction people can have without speaking because a lot of my most significant experiences with other people there are no words like if I were to write it out at, in movie format which we've done you know a few times um and stuff we're still working on but you know, some of these really powerful scenes, there are freaking no words because everybody's on blackout with each other, but you still have these, um, very intimate understandings and coexistings and, you know, almost alliances, these nonverbal alliances of mutual support. Um, but also you have people being, um, like emotionally and mentally, um group shamed and blamed and ostracized um and so there's that too and and that's a big thing of what will blow your mind i don't think I don't think that we can get those across in these podcasts, you know, like we can tell you all the things they made us do or they did to us, and um at most of our schools, most of us can agree that certain things were child abuse, and so we're like, oh, that needs to be stopped but for the psychological jazz, I'm not sure if we can get it across. So now I, we meant I touched on this in the first episode with Meredith because Meredith was on exile and exile for me was the most horrific sanction psychologically. Um, and maybe you guys can understand it when I verbally express it, but I think that when you watch things like the handmaiden's tale or you read certain dystopic books, um, uh, you can understand it better because it's different. You know, it's, this is a testimonial concept is like this happened to me and you can't relate and it either seems horrific or it doesn't. Right. But when you see it acted out or you read it in your own head and you create that stage, um, I think it takes on a whole new presence, um, because this is first person. But so let me just try. So, You're a teenager, you're a kid, we're going to call them children because they are, and you've been cast out of your home and you've been put in this environment where everyone is calling you adults and children a slut, um, because of the sexual assault that you suffered because again, you are a child and we're not talking about you, um, humping in cars with your boyfriend like I was, right? We're talking about you didn't approve of the sexual contact that happened anyways, um, And now you are slut-shamed collectively by your entire world, which is a few hundred people in the Catskill Mountains. You don't want to accept this. You're fighting back. You're defending yourself. You're refusing to accept this reality. You're you're refusing to stand up there and be like, you're right, I'm a dirty, worthless slut. Nobody loves me. I'm powerless. Um, I need to surrender. And if you don't do that, you can get put on exile. And so now... Everyone goes from calling you up in front of 30 people at a time to literally call you a slut, yell, point, spit in your face. Um, they've they've gone beyond putting you in a corner. Again, you're a teenager now, so being put in a corner in the middle of the room with 30-something-odd other kids um, who are allowed to come up to you if they're a senior member and talk shit to you while you sit in the corner to try to get you to um, break through on some level. Um, they've gone from putting you on poverty, taking away your shoes. Um, a lot of times this is standing in quarter all day in the, all the rooms that you're in. Um, and they've gone beyond putting you on work sanction, which means denying you access to education and work sanction is not helpful. Work sanction, we're not accomplishing anything. They're having you shovel snow from one field to another in a blizzard just so that you can understand and accept your powerlessness over your circumstances and have a breakthrough breakdown and first step. Um, or, um, you know, it's just mostly menial jazz, but also obviously you are doing the real stuff like uh, kitchen prep, uh, you know, you're doing all that jazz as well, cleaning, cleaning everything, but most of the family cleaning in the, in those buildings and in the dorms are shared. So that's not on the work sanction kids. Right. Um, but they've gone beyond this. And, uh, you know, maybe you were just on, you know, house family blackout, everybody, no one could speak to you except for senior members of your own family. Um, and now you're on exile. Um, and I witnessed people be on exile for uh, multiple people on exile, um, during my stay. And some of them, longer than weeks. Um, I believe one of the females that, uh, specifically, uh, impacted me because of course witness syndrome, I'm a selfish little bitch and it's all about me. Um, you know, because I can't accept the stuff about me. So, you know, I'm going to live vicariously through everybody's stories, but I'm also like writer narrative person. So isn't that kind of just who I am? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. But anyways, uh, she impacted me. Um, like I, I talk about her in therapy, and. So she was put on exile and watching her walk through the halls of this school alone in a, a palpable bubble of solitude was like a, it was awesome, but awful. Like, you know, it was so much awe that it was awful. It was profound. It was something I've, you know, written about in my mind and in on paper a million times since. I have no idea what it was like from her perspective, but just wondering that and and experiencing her experience from the outside world was enough. Um, and she was a good person. I really liked this person. You know, she was joyous and warm and open um, and just a beautiful light. And that's usually who got targeted. You guys were the people who were able to do that. Um, I think from a perspective of they didn't want the others to think you could just get through it, you know, that they needed everyone to see everyone break. Um, it was required participation. Um, and it was just, I, it's, it's inhumane. It was inhumane um, the science shows us that isolation is psychologically destructive. And we know that children, teenagers, especially their prefrontal cortex and other parts of their brain aren't fully developed yet. And so this kind of brain damage and excessive access to stress hormones through prolonged periods and, and, you know, a lack of access to hormones that would be otherwise beneficial. It's just permanently destructive. Um, and it, It was horrific to watch this happen. And, you know, on my selfish, you know, you go through your own experience as a witness um, level, it was horrific for me because I wasn't capable and I wasn't going to do anything. I wasn't going to risk being mandated to this school into my 20s by trying to help this other girl. But all I wanted to do was help this other girl. Bystander syndrome for someone like me or maybe just me, I I know there's others of you out there, there has to be, is the most, um, detrimental thing for my self image, my self esteem, my self confidence, because, you know, don't we all want to be the hero in our own story? And so to stand by while other people are really, and I mean this brutalized and everybody else is letting it happen. it just, it blows your fucking mind. You know, you watch hundreds of people pull a girl or whoever into the middle of the gymnasium and everyone stands around and, and house topics, unlike family topics are, um, they're just, they're so much more brutal and savage. And, you know, there are, and so if I have, if you didn't listen to the first episode to properly frame a topic, um, during all of your meals, three meals a day, whoop, you got three meals a day, maybe half portions, maybe a frozen soy burger, but you still got three meals a day. Um, if you chose to eat them, Uh, and there were table topics during these meals in your family, with your 30 kids and 10 odd adults, and you would call up different members of your family to either inform them that they are moving forward in their program, that they're visiting home, that they're graduating soon, these are the good ones, or that um, someone is calling them up for some negative behavior, and or they're you know getting put on a new sanction. You know this is how you would get off a sanction too. Would be at a table topic, although this would be fairly quick. Um, and so you would have maybe two or three of them per meal, or um, if it was your. F- lucky day um you'd be the table topic for the entire meal um that just depended and so house topics were the entire house so it was all the families together uh they were in my experience i remember them only being in the gymnasium probably the only place that we could all fit you know um they would have like a brief announcement Topicy thing, maybe a roundup before meals, where we would all stand together in the hallways of the school before going back to our families. But that wasn't a house topic, and a house topic usually resulted in someone being thrown in isolation, um, or being pulled out of isolation to be given an opportunity to get out of isolation. In my experience, that didn't happen. Um, and each of your families usually had a couple really aggressive big guys, the big scary guys. Um, usually, you know, they were the drug addicts instead of the alcoholics. They were still usually single, although maybe not in my family. Angelo was our bulldog. Um, he was a biker with a drug addiction. Um, and he was the guy who got red, went pit bull and spit in your face yelling, you know, not spit in your face, but spit in your face while he was yelling. I'm not trying to put shit on him that I didn't see y'all. Um, so we had Angelo, and then our female was Cindy, and we mentioned her, Cindy Argiros, the wife of the guy who ran the school in the first episode as well. And she was tiny, a tiny little, um, I don't think real redhead. Um, and she's had, like, those wild bug eyes that were just, like, always on, like, you know, if Brendan Fraser had been shot up with, like, everything. Um, and she was, like, a chihuahua energy. And so for someone like me neither Angelo nor Cindy was particularly threatening because I'd been dealing with, you know, my big, um, scary Vietnam vet, PTSD daddy, um, uh, in the middle of the night my whole life. And then chihuahua bitches, like they didn't have an effect on me because all I saw there was a lack of control and a projection of their own lack of power. That, that is how I took that. So those ones didn't work on me. And so for people like me, sometimes they would have us visit with, or have members of other families, try it out on us, um, that came from a different perspective and see what worked. And in house topics, all of a sudden, now you have all the pit bulls and all the chihuahuas from all the families are present. And so um, this gives that kid the opportunity to experience um, attack therapy from members of other families. And it happens in front of everyone in the school because a house topic, for me, I really feel like was less about actually getting that kid to surrender to whatever was happening um, as opposed to just making a statement to the other kids that this is what will happen to you if you do the same thing. Um, and this is also how you figured out like who was really targeted in other families. If you didn't already know, um, because they were in your families or they were on exile or whatever in your hallways or in your classes, um, this is how you'd figure it out. Um, and yeah, so house topics were pretty horrifying and, um, Uh, they also sometimes would be when someone was returning from having run away. Um, and then, you know, everyone berates them, yells in their face, throws them in isolation and informs them, um, they'll be on exile and work sanction or whatever. Um, and you know, for how, you know, until further notice, because sanctions are always usually until further notice, unless it's one of the standard, you're on six month blackout for this amount of time or until, you know, we review it. Um, and yeah house topics also happen in, like I said, in the gym, which is also where the isolation room is. So, and again, this is something I'm not sure we can verbally get across, but the, one of my favorite parts, um, and this was a brain shaker for me the first time it happened is when everybody gathers like the big mob and then they open the isolation door. And like I said, when they drag someone out of isolation, give them the opportunity to go back in. But just looking around this room at everyone who's so like freaking amped up and also so fucking relieved it's not them and then there's usually three or four peers who are testifying to why this person blah 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 which is you know permission for them to pretty much act like the adult staff the senior uh, members of your families that that's what it was, but it also allowed them to like get in your face, yell at you, berate you, tell you what's wrong with you. Um, and that's what they're supposed to do. Right. Um, and the more that they lay on you, the more obvious it is to staff staff that these students like are getting with the program that they're able to pick up all this. Um, And the isolation room, we, I mean, if you don't understand uh, the effects of isolation, um, uh, they are against the law here uh, in the United States of America. We do not isolate adults. So if you consider that these children's brains aren't fully developed, obviously isolating them is probably not a great idea. And I think there were two isolation rooms side by side, although I only ever really dealt with the one on the left, so maybe there is really only one. I'll have to ask Meredith. And they had these big red metal doors um, with this tiny, um, maybe it was a square-shaped foot, like maybe like 12 inches by 12 inches, glass peephole thing um, so that you could look into the isolation room because the isolation room, those kids were in there 24-7 for as long as they were in there. Um, and I witnessed children in there, uh, upwards of multiple weeks. Um, uh, they'd used, I think they also had Meredith talked about like a quiet room. There might've been a quiet room too. I don't even know where the hell that was. Right. Um, you knew where isolation was because it's in your fricking gym. And, uh, so there's that it's there and the kids staff it. So you have to have, I think it was usually two kids. One had to be a senior, um, sponsor, like a senior level student. Um, uh, watching isolation room at all times. So they would be like swapping out on shifts and study hauling or reading like the big book or doing whatever they needed to do, working on their program, doing their fourth step, whatever, um, sitting outside that locked metal door. Um, and then they would need to, you know, if they needed to look in, obviously check on it. If they need to report anything, I mean, it wasn't the biggest school in the world. If you just went yelling through the halls, everyone's going to notice cause that's kind of a normal thing that happens and we have to be aware. Um, and people would, so the room, um, I don't know, it was a square cement room and it had brown, like the utility carpet, um, uh, stapled or nailed or whatever to the floor and to the wall. So they have this carpet around the floor and the wall in the cement room. And you usually did not get out of that room to defecate. Um, I do think that I don't know if anybody was able to, cause I guess they could have the kids walk you to the bathroom. You could get like an adult, uh, supervisor to go with you to the bathroom, which was down that hall. But, um, all the people that I knew, like I only watched, um, isolation. I feel like one time because my junior sponsor was watching isolation. So I had to be there with her. Um, and in the entire time we were there, we did not let her out for a bathroom break. She asked to use the bathroom. Um, they were not letting her out, um, and you could see the effects that isolation had, because I mean you're in school with these kids, so like whether or not you have any sort of uh one on one relationship or they're in your family or not, um you know, like you get the vibe of someone right? Well, the vibe of someone in isolation for a few days peeing on themselves um or oh God, a few weeks like they are their souls are kind of drained out dead um it they disassociate it is brutal um and some people like never totally come back um and when they do it's it's a permanent change it's the same thing as when people came back frostbitten um after running away in you know the winter or came back after being sexually assaulted after running away um or or beaten up or going to jail for a little while before they came back or i mean the they're like it's very obvious changes um so isolation um for me it wasn't too scary of a thing. Um, you know, it's that arrogance that we talk of. I did think I would prefer to be in isolation than dealing with the psychological warfare I was dealing with with my peers and these totally, um, unbalanced adults who didn't know me and, um, you know, were trying to like manipulate my reality and like throw me into a psychological breakdown. But, um, seeing the effects of isolation firsthand, um, it's just uh it's just irreversible damage and it's really not worth the risk and i do believe that everyone that i saw in isolation suffered permanent damage from that experience um none of them ever came out the way they went in and that's just the reality of the situation now i in typical fashion after i realized i wasn't going to be able to get access to cps or any sort of authority um you know uh took to my uh you know like irish uh rebel tactics right so um i wasn't planning on going on a hunger strike but i do not eat tuna fish so i don't eat tuna fish not because i'm better than tuna fish Or even that I was born with this extreme dislike. In fact, my mother used to make me tuna fish sandwiches with raisins on cinnamon raisin bread when I was young, and I loved it. And, of course, I gorged upon it and, you know, thus created, like, an aversion to it. Um, to the extent that it's only been a few years that I stopped, like, (laughs) vomiting, um, if God forbid I smelt it, um you know, I'm really dramatic. Uh, so there's shit like that. So one day for lunch, our lunch is a ice cream scooper or two. I'm not really sure. I think I got half portions. I don't know of tuna fish just directly on a piece of lettuce. Um, I'm smoking a cigarette for this because it's traumatic. You guys, they wanted me to eat the tuna fish and I was like, no, no, Um, let us talk about the child abuse in this. Um, so I didn't want to eat the fucking tuna. So I didn't eat the tuna and turns out family school rule is what you don't eat, you will eat at your next meal. And this went on for days. I didn't eat anything for fricking days. Oh my God. I remember the vitamins now. Oh my God. Okay. Um, anyways, uh, so I eventually get to the point on my hunger strike where I am incredibly Week. I am, I'm not sure. I don't think I'm on work sanction at this time because I just would have like, uh, died, you know, a couple of days in. Um, and I remember, uh, and see, here's the fun part about these kind of memories, which, uh, if anybody has CPTSD or, you know, went through these experiences can relate to, I expect that some of my memories are so ingrained and so bright and vivid, full of all these somatic sight, smells, sounds. I can feel like I'm in the room. I can almost have a flashback. And if I were, like, super high... I would, right? Some of those memories are like that. I am behind my eyes, peering out in the moment. The way I see time is it's simultaneous. It's a human construct anyways. And so there's a huge fear about those moments because I don't want to, like, pop into the consciousness reality of then and get stuck there again for reality. Can you understand how horrifying it is to believe what I believe about time and consciousness and then have these, like, woof, You guys, I, I, the fear of waking up in that bunk and I still have the nightmares to this day, but the, even if I didn't have actual nightmares of it, the fear of my consciousness getting stuck back there with the part of my consciousness that is fucking stuck back there for eternity, like, dude, uh, this is why if I didn't have a kid or a dog, I'd be dead now. Like I really would, because I just am not willing to risk that. Um, I don't know what we were talking about. Oh tuna. So the child abuse known as tuna. So I am on the floor of our locker room thing that we all share and it's like the, you know, blue linoleum shit and it's cold and I'm cold and I just don't have any energy left like my body is I've been drinking water, you know what I mean? I think I've been taking my vitamin um but I my body is done. Um It wasn't made to go this many days without food, and all it would have been was some bullshit tuna anyway, so it's not like it would have even filled me up, and I just cannot life, and we need to go to class, and I'm on the floor of the locker room, and my psychological state is such that this is a Miranda meltdown we are having. don't know if I'm crying. I think I'm being more like, um, you know, totally disassociated, staring out into space, like refusing to respond to people. I can probably hear them, but like, let's just pretend I can't because here's, here's where I'm at now. So where I'm at now is like, dude, if I like need to go to a hospital, my human rights like come into play again. And I remember like, I've already gone through like legit Yale training for Amnesty International as a student rep being trained to be the state rep. So I know what my fucking human rights are. And I know if I get to a public hospital that I get access to the police and CPS. Like, I don't know how the laws are in New York, but uh, but I'm pretty sure that's the case here too. So this is my goal. Like, and also like, remember, um, if because I didn't tell you, but you should fucking remember cause I told you I was Irish. I like, I'm already all about Bobby Sands. Okay. Like H block. I've, I've read all about that. I, I've read about other, um, you know, starvation strikes. Um, again, I'm, I was highly involved with Amnesty International as a youth. Like these are the choices I'm making as a teenager. Cause I give a shit about that shit. So, I am now not only just refusing to subject myself to tuna fish, um, but I am also trying to escape this prison um, and hope to get access to any anything that will change my circumstance or give me contact with the outside world. Because at this point, and I, I think we're at least a month into the family school or something. When this happens, um, it's not the first week. Um, I have had zero contact with the outside world of any kind. I've had zero contact with my parents. Um, Obviously, I'm not going to have any contact with Cindy. She's not my mom, right? Even though she actually had a guardianship that was given to her by my parents prior to me going there. Um, Obviously, I have no contact with my boyfriend or my friends. Come on, you guys. And I have nobody else in my family that would be looking for or advocating for me. Remember, my aunt left me years ago. So, Um, no contact. And so this starvation strike is my only way out. And it is, I am putting everything into it. I, I don't believe that I'm going to fucking die from like, you know, passing out or even having like my stupid fucking damaged liver fail on me. Um, I'm pretty sure they will be like required to transfer me to a hospital. I'm pretty sure an ambulance is going to come and get me. I made my point, right? So I don't know if I'd verbalize this point. I fucking hope I hadn't, but you know, again, with my arrogance, perhaps I had, perhaps I told my sponsor in, you know, like, uh, my sanctimonious martyrdom of nutrition that I was on my way to liberation through the hospital system. Maybe I'd done that. I don't know. We'll have to ask her, but either way, Cindy fucking Argyros, who actually, Cindy, I think was my temporary sponsor before Tina was finally fully my sponsor. So maybe she's my sponsor at this time, or this is right after it's been handed over, marches into the locker room and gets in my face with her bug eyes and informs me that my master plan is not going to work because they're getting an IV ready and, um, they're just gonna give me an IV here, and keep doing that until I eat food, and I'm not gonna die, like, it's fine, like, that's total, total, they've talked to my parents, my parents already know what I'm doing, and it's, of course, it's typical of me to, like, have a starvation strike, and, um, my bullshit manipulations aren't going to work, um, and, ah, oh, I'm such a bitch baby, you guys, oh, my world just came crashing down, you know, like, I'd committed every bit of mental energy and physical strength to this plan. And I believed that it was over. Now I'm 33 now. And at 33 now, fuck you, bitch. I'm going to call your bluff, right? I think she threw in getting mandated for this, you know? Um, and I think that that I just psychologically, and I've, I fast now in life. Right. And, um, so I've gotten to points where I've pushed myself, where I'm a, like, I'm just not, you know, cognitively functioning at my finest because I'm starving. Right. Um, so I'm sure that was in play and I was 17 and, uh, I'm just really trying not to blame myself for not calling her on her bluff and getting out faster, Um, but I don't even know if my plan would have worked right, so like, what if I had gotten to the hospital and maybe it was in Hancock or Binghamton where the police were bought by the by the school, which they really were because they're the like um delaware police- county police or whatever were always bringing the kids back um no matter what they told them. So maybe it wouldn't have worked. And then maybe that would have psychologically broken me sooner. And when I had gone back to the school, psychologically broken, maybe I would have drank the Kool-Aid and then maybe I would have stayed and maybe I'd be broken on some other level now. So, you know, it all works out the way it's supposed to. All the keychain slogans are probably true. Um, But I gave in and I, um, I ate the tuna and my vomit and, um, I, uh, we moved forward, um, in that experience. Um, you know, uh, up until this too, I wasn't eating, I'd never eaten other than, um, maybe it's possible that I'd had fast food bacon before, but at home I always had turkey bacon, but like I didn't eat pork. And, um, when I got there, I told them I was a vegetarian and they told me, no, I wasn't. So, um, I had, I had long given in for the meat thing. Um, the tuna and the gagging and the eating my vomit while everybody mocked me and I'm such a bitch baby. (laughs) That's not trauma y'all, but it, 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 was for me. Um, it was, um, and it, and it didn't have anything to do with the tuna. <laughs> Woo. Let's take a breather. So, um, heads up. Um, I did finish this what well, was supposed to be one episode, but it turns out I literally sat in my car chain smoking cigarettes, an entire pack, mind you, drinking two coffees, and I guess therapeutically recording all day long. So um, this whole story is almost four hours, and so um, I am going to clip it here. If you want to just uh, start up uh, the next episode because you actually want to spend that much time hearing about my shit, then uh, by all means, start the next half of this episode. It's going to pick up. On table topics and uh, my topics, we're going to go into sanctions. Uh, we are going to touch on some pretty intense um, abuse and even a death at the school. And then uh, the to- you know the next episode is going to cover you know what happened after the school, what I used for healing, uh, and what you can reach out for as resources if you're kind of in a similar situation, if you're in the survivors of institutional abuse boat. Um, what would have preferred to have clipped this episode at a funny point, but, um, fuck it. I feel like after, you know, my little tuna episode, we all might need a beer. Is it too, is it not funny to make a beer joke and kind of like a parody Alcoholics Anonymous story? Is it, is it not okay? Let me know. Okay. Alright, well, I will see you either in a moment when you click play on part two, or, you know, um, in ten years when you decide maybe you want to deal with this shit again. I do not blame you. Samezies. Talk to you guys later on Troubled. Bye.